Shalom, shalom, wonderful friends. Great to see you and thank you for your flexibility. We will still normally be at uh, Tuesday at 10 Mountain, which is 9 Pacific and noon Eastern. But um, given uh, the schedule of the week, um, I appreciate y'all's flexibility to make today work. So before we jump into Husserl, I would love to hear your thoughts on this poll question. I am most, like, who am I? My body, my mind, my soul. There is no I in the space between me and you. <laughs> who are you most? Your body, your mind, your soul. There is no I or in the space between me and you. Okay, wow. 20% say that they believe they're mostly their body. 40% say they're mostly their mind. Nobody said their soul. 40% said there is no I. And no one said in the space between me and you, which I just threw in for fun. <laughs> but it's still a compelling, it's still an interesting. Um, yeah, the space in between is, is very rich. Because um, who who am I if there is no you? Uh, okay. Anyways, friends, um, let let's launch into Husserl. I suspect he is one of the five lesser known names among the forty five we're doing together, um, and that's okay. That's okay, as we shall see. How do we know that something exists? Can it be proven by science, or should we rely on human experience? Edmund Husserl was born in Moravia, which was within the Austria-Hungarian Empire, but is now part of the Czech Republic. He was Jewish, though he wasn't known to be traditionally religious. Husserl became a lecturer at the University of, of Halle, is it Halle or Halle, I forget, in Germany, and eventually landed at the University of Freiburg, where Martin Heidegger was one of his students. We'll learn more about Heidegger uh, through Husserl. I don't want to give Heidegger his own session but we'll, we'll touch on Heidegger through Husserl. Husserl worked within the fields of ontology and phenomenology. More on that in a moment. Phenomenology was his approach to ontology. Um, what does that mean? Well, according to Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, as a first approximation, ontology is the study 
of what there is, almost like the study of being. Many classical philosophical, philosophical problems are problems in ontology. The question whether or not there is a God, the problem of the existence of universals, can anything be universally true? These are all problems in ontology in the sense that they deal with whether or not a certain thing or more broadly entity exists. But ontology is usually also taken to encompass problems about the most general features and relations of the entities which do exist. So does the self exist? Does God exist? What is what what actually is participates in being? Those are questions of ontology. But it's crucial to note that the great insight of phenomenology is to bracket many of the classic issues of ontology to focus on the structures of consciousness, human consciousness, and what they can tell us about human experience of the world. Husserl is considered the founder of phenomenology. You, wonder, you might be wondering again what that is. Phenomenology is the study of structures of consciousness as experienced from the first-person point of view. The central structure of an experience is its intentionality. It's being directed towards something as it is an experience of or about some object. An experience is directed toward an object by virtue of its content or meaning, which represents the object together with appropriate enabling conditions. Okay, so just a quick review. Ontology, what exists? Phenomenology, a part of ontology, says our experience of what exists. How do I encounter you? How do I experience you? The question is not, do you exist? The question is, how do, in my own consciousness, experience your existence? That's where we get phenomena or phenomena, uh, phenomena, right? I experience phenomena through my consciousness. It doesn't mean they necessarily exist, but it's my experience of what I believe to exist. And so Husserl sought to address the question of what is through the lens of what we experience. The fact that I experience something doesn't make it true. Um, if I'm sad about something, if I find something beautiful, doesn't make it inherently beautiful because I experience it as beautiful. The fact that I experience your beauty doesn't objectively make you beautiful. It's just my experience of phenomena, which is different than um, what necessarily exists. If I experience God, it doesn't mean God exists, or does it? He differentiated himself from previous thinkers in this respect, saying philosophers, as things now stand, are all too fond of offering criticism from on high instead of studying and understanding things from within. So here he's offering a critique of traditional philosophy. He says, oh, somebody's sitting in their study, in their armchair, thinking, right? That's not philosophy. I can just think abstractly about life. You need to experience something within it to know it, right? It would be like a, it would be like someone who's never drank wine, being a wine, uh, what's it called when you're a wine connoisseur? Um, like describing what, what the experience of wine without experiencing wine. It would be like, um, you know, someone who's never had a spiritual experience trying to explain what spirituality is. Makes no sense. Or someone trying to write a poem about love who's never had experienced love, right? That he says, how, what are these philosophers even talking about, right? Uh, so, so abstractly in such a distance, you need to get up close and experience reality. You know, it'd be like someone trying to, um, um, 
you know, enter the discourse of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, who'd never been there, never met anybody or talked to somebody, kind of read a few articles, like, oh, I get it. Like, I read some articles. I understand how this works, right? Um, or, um, or explain Chinese culture and never being to China. Phenomenology was a groundbreaking idea because it was uninterested in prior ways of understanding an objective reality, which emphasized the speculative use of reason to make conclusions about the world. Precedence was instead given to conscious experience of that reality. This marked a profound shift from the study of abstract truth to the study of human meaning making. This is also true when we say a white person doesn't really understand racism. We can study it, we can talk to people of color, but can you really understand what racism is unless you've experienced it? Or can a Gentile know what anti-Semitism is? They're like, oh, I get it, it's hate, and it's just hate towards your group as opposed to my group, right? Or can a man understand what it's like to be experienced sexism? I guess you could understand it kind of intellectually, empathetically, but um, ac according to phenomenology, right, there's a whole different realm of the subjective um, human-making experience that only one can understand from within. Husserl was not one to deny that these external things truly exist. Rather, to him, they exist only in relationship to the meaning-making per perceiver. Natural objects, Husserl said, must be experienced before any theorizing about them can occur. You know, interesting enough, it might also be true that if you, all you know is to be within something, you know nothing what it is. You know nothing about what it is you're within. You have to be without it or outside of it to know what it's like to be within it. It's like that comic you've probably seen before that um, that has a fish. Uh, I forgot how exactly it plays out, but essentially the fish says, um, what is water? Right? Like, what's water? Like, it only, it needs water to exist, but it doesn't even know what water is because it takes completely for granted that its entirety of its existence is within water. There's so many things that we exist within that we know nothing about because we've never been outside of it. We only know what it's like to be within it. Husserl was captured by the idea that focusing on pure experience frees us from biases and assumptions. He had hoped that the sciences could be placed on such a firm foundation that they could help us find truth without biases. But he came to conclude that this was not possible. So he wanted, he wanted to, as an alternative, develop a scientific approach to experience, a way of examining experience that could be held up to scientific scrutiny. Husserl differentiated between a subjective consciousness and an objective pure consciousness, he said. Psychologically experienced consciousness is therefore no longer pure consciousness. However, construed objectively in this way, consciousness itself becomes something transcendent because becomes an event in that spatial world which appears by virtue of consciousness to be transcendent. Husserl was an outspoken critic of Nazism. He said in 1933, the future alone will judge which was the true Germany in 1933 and who were the true Germans those who subscribe to the more or less materialistic, mythical racial prejudices of the day, or those Germans pure in heart and mind, heirs to the great Germans of the past, whose tradition they revere and perpetuate. The same year he was suspended from the university due to his Jewish background, and his former student Heidegger, who was aligned with the Nazis, that's why I chose not to 
uh, include him in this session, although there's many people who lack a virtue, uh, certain virtues who are included in this, and people even who had problematic uh, moral lives. But there are some limits to that, perhaps. Um, may have hold, held a role to play in it. Part of what I would distinguish in is if, you, if you're a slaveholder living only among slaveholders, right? I don't want to say you get a pass, but, the, but you don't get a pass at all. But if you're a person who thinks women don't get to vote in a society where nobody thinks women can vote, you don't get a pass. But that context is really real. But if you exist in a time period of evil where there really is a strong pushback, you exist within the revolution, right? Then you're aware of an alternative viewpoint uh, as it exists in your generation. Uh, but push back on me later if you disagree with that or if you think about that differently. We're not going to give a, few, a full section to Heidegger, as just mentioned, because of his Nazi sympathies. But I think this is a good time to lay down some of the ideas that Heidegger's about Heidegger's impact. Heidegger had previously wanted to become a Christian priest, but it was in part his encounter with the Jewish Husserl's philosophy that inspired him to change paths. Interesting that Heidegger is sympathetic to um, Nazis, but his teacher here uh, changed his life course, uh, Husserl. In the 1930s, unfortunately, though, he became a member of the Nazi party. Though often considered one of the greatest philosophers of the last century, um, over there on the right, um, recent research has shown that his Nazi sympathies were not just incidental to his philosophical work, but can be seen as an outgrowth of his, precisely of his philosophical work. Though the Nazis were concerned with being an objective, superior race, Husserl and Heidegger were interested in the subjective realm and in human meaning making. Husserl died shortly before the Holocaust. Like his mentor, Husserl, Heidegger too was interested in the nature of being and how phenomenology could shed light on this nature of being. More specifically, he was concerned with issues of what it means to be human and how a person can live an authentic life. Heidegger's philosophy would influence Jean-Paul Sartre, who we will get to, and Hans-George Gadamer. Husserl was also a teacher of Edith Stein, a Jewish philosopher who had converted to Christianity out of Judaism and eventually became a nun, but who was nonetheless murdered in the Holocaust, even though she converted and became a nun. It was under Husserl's supervision that Stein wrote her dissertation the empathy problem as it developed historically and considered phenomenologically. Stein articulated a vision of phenomenology that claimed experience to be of a greater essence than other forms of knowledge. She wrote, all our present experiences are primordial. What could be more primordial than exist experience itself? She even gave this phenomenology a theological dimension saying, as the possessor of complete knowledge, God is not mistaken about people's experiences, as people are mistaken about each other's experiences. It's notable that Husserl's life almost entirely overlapped with that of another groundbreaking Jew from Moravia, Sigmund Freud, and both were students of the German philosopher Franz Brentano. In fact, one of the critiques of Husserl in his time was that he was too concerned with the psychological. However, where Husserl focused on the structures of consciousness, it was Freud who argued for the unconscious, those aspects of ourselves that escape our phenomenal awareness, right? Husserl wants to look at 
the experience that we are conscious of. Freud primarily wants to look beyond the phenomenal awareness into the realm of the unconscious and subconscious. In the Jewish world, Husserl's influence found its way to Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who also drew upon phenomenology in his examinations of prophecy and religious experience. While Heschel believed Jewish law to be fully binding, he was concerned that too often an exclusive focus on Jewish law served to obscure the importance of religious experience in religious life. By the way, tangentially, we often misattribute it to Heschel, um, the, the famous quote, when Heschel marched with Martin Luther King and he was asked something like, did you pray before the march or something? He said, I felt I was praying with my feet, which is to say you don't just pray with words, you pray with your body, you pray through your activism, you pray through your good deeds, so to speak. But that's often attributed to him. But um, someone correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm, uh, I'm now I'm 90% sure, not 100, and I always hate to say something. I, I, I'm 90% sure it was Booker T. Washington who was the first person to say he was praying with his feet. Somebody can probably Google it and find it really quickly if you don't know, absolutely. If you know, absolutely, put it in the chat. Um, if it's not Booker T. Washington, it was someone of that like. It was a black man um, fighting for liberation who said something earlier. And I assume Heschel was drawing on that. It could be that Heschel had the same insight um, that, um, that that previous person did, um, but more likely he was um, referencing that. The importance of conscious experience is deeply rooted in the Jewish tradition. A teaching from the Baal Shem Tov tells us, You are where your thoughts are. Who are you? You are your thoughts. Where are you? You are where your thoughts are. Don't say, oh, I'm here in Berkeley, California. I'm here in Jerusalem, right? Today I'm here in Los Angeles. Um, I'm in Portland. Right, I am actually my existence is where my thoughts are. Um, that is our essence. That is our existence. Not our, 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 our not our essence. That is our existence. Where our mind is located. Phenomenology, especially as explained by Edith Stein, who we mentioned earlier, born Jewish, converted to and became a nun, um, and and her work was on empathy, deals with intersubjectivity, which we can call the space between your subjective experience and my subjective experience. Right? That's a, a wonderful space. Um, the wonderful space of, of meeting my mind with your mind. It's one thing to talk ideas. It's another thing to really feel, I understand you. I understand your thinking. I understand your feeling. There's a meeting of minds, right? I imagine most of us have had very, very few experiences that truly capture that. Maybe, no, maybe no experience. Um, but think, and most people would probably describe it as a moment of love, a moment where two people feel um, they just fell in love together, or they feel so connected in this experience. And they know how the other's experiencing. I, but it's again, it's not just an empathy. I know how you feel and I know how I feel. There's a sense of there's a meeting in that middle space um, in our inter intersubjective experience. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on that when we get the conversation of what that looks like to you. This is the space in which we encounter the other and is what serves as the basis for empathy and beyond. 
in Judaism, we recognize that empathy requires stepping beyond one's subjective experience and into someone else's subjective experience through an encounter with them and their reality. It's unfortunate the work of Husserl, and especially his student Edith Stein, did not spawn a significant field in Germany in the 1930s for the specific study of empathy. It would have been great in the 30s in Germany if they, if they were fascinated with empathy, but that Husserl and, and Edith Stein and their work did not take off. Buber's I and Thou is basically a phenomenology of empathy and dialogue. It was perhaps the most popular philosophical book in Germany in the early 20th century. Ah, Frederick Douglass. Yes, not Booker T. Washington. Thank you so much for correcting me. Very different people, even though there's a reason why people would lump them together. Black men fighting for liberation, um, you know, before there were there were civil rights. I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. Beautiful. Thank you, Aglaia. Um, Anyways, even so, Buber was more of a popular thinker than an academic one who affected intellectual trends in the university. It's also worth noting that Levinas studied with Husserl. We'll get to Levinas soon. I can't wait to get there. He's probably the most famous proponent of the ph phenomenological method in the second half of the 20th century. <coughs> Excuse me. He also turns phenomenology towards ethics but not through the idea of empathy, the notion that we can know the other or get in their head. Rather, we're talking about Levinas now, uses phenomenology to stage how, to, how the encounter with the other fundamentally shapes our subjectivity by placing demands on us. Um, right, so Buber and some of the other phenomenologists are interested in the intersubjective through empathy. Um, and Husserl is pushing us there as well, Edith Stein. Levinas, as we'll see, is interested in this encounter with the other, but it, it, it's a move towards duty and responsibility more than one of empathy. What makes Heidegger so problematic is that his use of phenomenology is also exclusively focused on the individual's experience of the world rather than their encounter with their fellow human beings. Stein and Levinas stand in direct contradiction to this by centering the encounter with the other. That's part of why, you know, Heidegger's move towards Nazism. We know from our Jewish experience that it is one thing to do a physical act of kindness, but another to be empathetic, to have a true person-to-person -person connection. One can do a kind act with no empathy. It's very easy. We do it all the time. One can be, em be empathetic without doing a kind act. We don't want to just help people coldly. We want to do compassionate things and be compassionate people in addition to doing compassionate things. Further, just as there are aspects of philosophy that focus on our empirical experience of the external world and others that focus on a study of inner experience, we know that Judaism contains both dimensions as well. We certainly care about the objective realm, such as about Jewish tradition and the concrete ways in which it can be lived by means of ritual objects, mitzvot, the land of Israel, the study of tangible objects and languages, and the healing of sick bodies. But especially since the time of the Baal Shem Tov, the Besht, we've made the modern move of caring deeply about the interior world of each person. The inner life is not only meaningful, it's where we actually live. So to move towards a conclusion, 
Even outside the Hasidic tradition, though, Judaism has a concept of avoiding avoiding detrimental thoughts. Right? Modern people are oftentimes not so interested in this, this aspect of spirituality. Right? Why do I need a purity of mind? I want freedom of mind. Yes, it's important that we avoid immoral behaviors, but we also care about ethical intentionality and developing a moral consciousness. We care what we put into our mind. We don't just flip the stations into anything that's entertaining, right? We care what goes into our mind. From Husserl and phenomenology, we can learn to try to listen more closely to our own unfiltered experiences. And we can, through our best efforts at empathy, attempt to understand one another. Modern philosophy and the Jewish tradition both teach us that while some things can be empirically observed, there is no replacement for the realm of the soul and the inner life, the life of the mind, in ourselves and in others. Okay, friends, that was a lot to throw at you. And we also, um, unlike many past sessions, threw out a lot of different names that are connected to Husserl. So we may have got a little confused as to Husserl and Heidegger and Edith Stein and Buber and Levinas. So if we need any clarity on that, feel free to, to raise that as well. But with that, I would love to open our conversation as always towards something we touched on or something you're thinking about that wasn't exactly something um, we touched. Yeah, hi, Steve Chauvin. Hi. You said somewhere about one of the gentlemen uh, that he said you are what you think you are. I think I think you said that. I I have learned in my life and uh, I'll I'll sort of precede that with a lot of people say they're Jake, great judges of character. I think I'm just the opposite. And I've learned not to go with my first impression of somebody. And this might sound extremely mundane. It has to do with pickleball. And yesterday I was playing a guy who was the most ferocious rascal when it came to this game he was slamming everything down my throat i'm 5'8 165 this guy was 6'4 maybe 250 and i couldn't hit a thing and i started really getting angry at him not at myself but at him and i knew that i had to pursue this i had to get rid of my anger and have to figure out what this guy was all about this guy turned out to be the sweetest nicest guy I have met in the last two days. I mean, he was tremendous and he gave me all kinds of tips and sort of acknowledged the fact that he had played a lot of racket sports and he really knew them well. And it was just a joyful moment in my life to, to, to know that I've learned not to go with my first opinion. I am not always uh, who, who I think I am on the, on the first meeting of someone. That's kind of complicated and I'll leave it there. Uh, Steve, that, I'm so glad you shared that. That's so great. And I just want to, I want to just love, I just want to pour some love on two things you said before we get to your, your main point. One was that he was the nicest person you met in two days. I thought that was really sweet based on how many nice people you meet. Um, and so that is, uh, you, you see the niceness in people. <laughs> um, and so you're constantly meeting them. Um, but also just, it, I, I'm inspired also by your attention to your anger and your work on your anger, even in the midst of it, and even in the midst of the sport. And that's important for all of us in practicing Musar to, to think about, um, you know, where that anger is coming from and what we can do with it. But on to your main point um, within phenomenology of how we experience people. And 
how much do we trust our judgments of people? And yes, it is very popular today to say, oh, I know somebody immediately. I can tell someone's character right away, um, you know, with a lot of confidence as if, you know, five seconds or 50 seconds with someone is, um, isn't going to change it. And how many people, it really is true that those first impressions can't be wiped away, um, which is a, a sad commentary on human experience. And yet what you're saying from a phenomenological perspective is that um, we want to strive to wipe away past experiences, to almost erase them, to rewrite them based on new data. And what a beautiful thing for making peace, for um, uh, living in relationship with people, to be able to re-see them and um, rethink who they are, to be able to re-experience them. Um, that the person that we are so we're so angry at just moments ago, we can actually see their full beauty and kindness. And um, you know, that is a great trait in Musar for us to think about. Um, what we often say, flip our judgment into curiosity. Um, that we can see someone and judge them, but then step back and say, no, what I was actually judging was my experience. It wasn't them at all. My experience was anger, and I was then assuming this was a, a mean-spirited person. But once I step out of my anger and erase that prior experience, I can now see you in your fullness on a different level. Wow. And when we talk about peacemaking between nations, how are we going to wipe away past trauma in order to see each other again? I mean, that's going to be incredibly difficult. But how are we going to collectively talk about rebuilding America, you know, um, amidst the divides that are going to reemerge in 2024? How are we going to see each other? So thank you, Steve. That was very rich. Thank you for that. Yeah. Hey, Gary Gartsman. Two, two statements you that came out of the discussion. This is more of an observation and a question. I don't have an answer. But one, the I guess phenomenology, you cannot uh, discuss something unless you've experienced it. And you cannot understand something unless you've stepped outside it. And I don't, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I'm trying to kind of reconcile the two somewhat opposing concepts. Uh, what, oh, great. I love okay. that. I love so, that. So what is the validity of my writing a play uh, when I describe my experiences growing up as a young Black woman in, young Black girl in Detroit? And you go, well, that's, that's the stupidest thing in the world. You have no agency to write such a thing and go well why is it all or none you know uh, that's it may not be a quote-unquote real experience but it's how i envision uh the experience of uh, growing up in that way and then for that young girl uh, uh for the for the concept maybe there is more validity of well you can't write about growing up as a young girl and black girl in detroit until you talk to someone who wasn't that you know Someone who is the fish, you are outside the water of the fish. You know, does that enrich your experience? So I don't have any answers, just these things bouncing around as great. a result of your presentation. Great, great. I love it. And I also don't have any answers. And I'm curious to hear others wrestle with this. Just a reflection on what you said. And I'm so glad you went in this direction. And I really believe each of us knows so much. And we should we should own what we know and we don't understand anything. We don't understand anything. And that's why we need that's why we need groups to study with. 
That's why we need communities and relationships because there's so much we know, and yet paradoxically, we know nothing. And so um, I think that touches on this exact contradiction, the sense that you can't dis- you can't understand something unless you experience it, and yet you, you have to be able to step out. And so um, if I'm a Black person, only I can understand what it means to be Black, and yet I know nothing about Blackness because I've never been outside my Blackness. So too, as a white person, only I can understand what it's like to be a white person, um, and yet I know nothing about it because I've never experienced whiteness outside of myself, right? And so um, what do we do with that? I think part of what we do with that is cultivate a whole lot of humility that um, there's so much we know that others don't know because of our own experience. And yet there's so much we don't know about others' experiences. And there's so much we don't even know about our own experience. You know, there was this leadership um, class I was once in. And one of the big 10 themes of the class was um, getting data from people of how they experience you. So something I never knew until that class was just how loud I was. I'm, I'm 6'3", I'm a 6'3", white man, right? And I walked into rooms and I use my body. I like, I, I like put my legs over my legs and I, I speak loudly. And, and, and one of the things that happens is people give you feedback in this group of how they experience you. And, and I started to hear some, some feedback on like, when I speak in a loud room, what, I mean, oh my gosh, I don't intend to convey myself that way. And if we all did that, if we all got feedback of how people experience us, it would oftentimes be very difficult from what we intend to convey. We don't even know ourselves, right? We know our intentions, but we don't know how people experience us, right? Um, we might um, be trying to give off something very different than what we're necessarily giving. And so, yeah, so anyways, I want to pause there because I think Gary's uh, direction is so great and people can go another direction, but if you want to bounce more off, off Gary's point around experience of ourselves and others and stepping in and stepping out, that'd be great. Hi, Sarah. Good afternoon. Yeah. Um, so uh, you've just raised too many things for me to address. <laughs> um, one is that art obviously transcends our personal experiences of sort of the environment, especially if you look at historical fiction, how many of us are actually were alive in 1200 or 1600, or even, you know, at the turn of the last, the previous century. So it would be really difficult for us to approach much art from a phenomenological standpoint. Um, whether it's a play. On the other hand, anthropology has another phenomenologic part in cultural anthropology. Um, I learned it through anthropology of dance, of you can watch a dance in a culture, but when you dance with the people and have their experience and ask them more about their experience, that's a completely different phenomenon than just watching it from the outside, which is how much of anthropology was supposed to be done. Um, next, you, uh, I'm trying to think of all the things you raised. Uh, I, one of the things that was fascinating to me is even in the poll, the notion of between the two of us and how much of us exists in that space because we are certainly encouraged to be connected, that part of being human is being in connection. We can withdraw 
and stay in our own space. But then how much do we know about ourselves, just as you just said, until we get feedback? And in that feedback loop, we learn more about ourselves. You asked whether any of us had had that experience of that intersubjective space. And I know through years of doing nonviolent communication and going down a trek of the spiritual realm of nonviolent communication, that indeed, when I would go to a truly empathic space with another and really try to understand not only what they were feeling, but mostly what need they were trying to meet. In that need, when we can come to that space of understanding each other at the core of our need, which usually is the same, then it opens up a different world. It's it's Rumi's field between right and wrong. It's we are together suddenly in a different space, which I assume is what Edith Stein was trying to point us to. Mm. And I'm complete. Thanks. Awesome, Sarah. Thank you so much. And just pick, picking up on that last one, I think that one of the reasons that ritual in community is so powerful is because we are trying to be in the same experience together, meditating together or singing together. When somebody stands up before the spiritual experience and offers a kavana, an intentionality, all the more so trying to raise a collective consciousness around this experience. Or, um, and it doesn't just have to be a kind of um, uh, a religious experience. Think about an experience of a funeral where people knew this same person, they love this person, and they're sitting together mourning this person. In that ritual together, um, there's something so powerful. And, 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 and on and on in terms of that. Uh, so thank you for that. And in terms of the feedback point, I think is really great. You know, we're so conditioned these days to be afraid of feedback, to be defensive of feedback. We don't want it. We don't trust the person even giving it. And of course, there's a lot of people we shouldn't trust who want to give us feedback. But in spaces where we do trust people, wow, what a gift feedback is in terms of how people are experiencing us and um, what we can learn about ourselves and how we can be of service to others more deeply if we can cultivate the trust where people will really give us that feedback. And just to your first point, although it was so so rich beyond what I could say, and just point about art and dance and beyond just uh, watching and discussing, um, you know, this thing I always come back to with Heifetz and Linsky um, out of the Harvard Government School, School of Government, um, around this point around when we when we um, want to address needs, we have to go from the dance floor to the balcony. I often come back to this, that we have to be in the dance and then we have to go to the balcony and see how the dance is changing. And constantly in our lives, um, when we're in, engaging with people, we want to ask ourselves, am I dancing right now or am I on the balcony right now? Because dancing means you're immersed in the interaction. Balcony means you're watching what's changing in the space we're in. Right. And how do we phenomenologically take our consciousness back and forth from being in the moment to beyond the moment? To go back to what Gary said earlier, in the water and out of the water. How am I within myself and beyond myself? Right. And that's a big part of empathy, too. Oh, you said something that kind of triggered something within me. 
right? But I can't stay within me. I need to come back to you to be with you. But if I'm just within you, then I'm not within my myself as well. Then there's this constant back and forth of being able to be within me, to be within you, to step beyond me, to step within you, right? Um, within that process. Okay. Aglaia, hi, Aglaia. Can I just finish with you? Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry, sir. Did I cut you off? Well, no, I'm just, the one thing about the feedback is um, that we have to remain really curious about it. We have to get beyond the label that someone has given us. I've been told I'm terribly intimidating. And this little five foot woman, and the first time I ever heard it at age 17 was, what do you mean I'm intimidating? What are you talking about? Um, but you have to, you have to look more deeply, and you have to keep asking the questions of like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? What is it that I am doing or saying in this moment that leads you to feel the way you feel? Um, that's the only thing I'd say about the feedback loop that it needs to be a loop and it needs to keep spinning until you can get to something that's more meaningful. Yes. Yes. Great. Yes. I love that. You got to go deeper into it. And the other thing I would add to that, tell me if you agree, Sarah, is that we should also remember that the feedback is not the sole and objective truth of who we are. It's just one little piece. It's just a piece of data. Oh, you experience me that way. Someone else experiences me the opposite. You think, you know, um, I'm insensitive and that person thinks I'm the most sensitive person in the world. And that's just pieces of data to collect. Right. Do you agree with that, Sarah? Thank you. Okay, great. Okay, hi, Aglaia. Okay, can't turn on my camera today, so okay. sorry. But okay, so first of all, to um, just address like everything and all that <laughs> jazz and everything, though. But um, speaking as you know, one of my big frustrations with you know history, you know, academically and everything like that. In fact, the academic world in general. And I'm going to get myself in trouble for saying this, but I really don't care at this point. But okay, for instance, so the question of, well, can you write a history book about, you know, people who don't look like you? Um, here's the thing. It is also like, like, I mean, here's the thing. There, there's answers to this, like, well, no, you cannot experience someone else's experiences. There's that, but then there are also many different answers that are, you know, there's no one answer, but there are also many different answers. So the idea that, you know, the way that it went in the history world is that, are you allowed, are you expected, are you going to be pressured and pushed to write only about people who look like you? And are you supposed to stay in that place and mm -hmm. not tread on the places where you are not, not, you know, I mean, when people of color go to a medieval, you know, like history conference, and they're subjected to racial slurs when they're there, because they're not supposed to be there. They're supposed to be teaching about people who look exactly like them. Mm -hmm. That does mm -hmm. get pretty frustrating. Meanwhile, if you are a white person who is particularly interested in a topic that, like, say, for instance, you're interested in writing about slavery, well, can I 100% say 100% for sure that you should not write about this? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's not, it's, there are other factors involved. Meanwhile, taking other people's feedback a lot of the time, though, like just speaking from the, you know, 
academic standpoint, not even from the personal standpoint, gaslighting is going to be an issue that is going to come up. And it does happen, you know, like it happens in the workplace, it happens in your personal life, it happens all over the place and everything. People can convince, you know, other people of things that are just, you know, absolutely ridiculous too. And it can be very, very um, dangerous and very, very abusive. So the way that I'm kind of looking at this is that, um, I mean, a lot of the time that we want an answer to these questions, and then we come to the conclusion that there's no one objective answer, but that doesn't rule out the possibility that there are also many objective answers, like men who write women's history. If I don't, if I'm going to say that men cannot write women's history, well, what does that mean for me? What are the types of history that I'm allowed to study? What am I allowed to write about? And that's one of my frustrations. I mean, like, I don't want to be restricted just because I restricted other people also. So I don't know if you want to do anything with that or not, though. But yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Aglia. That's so awesome. And um, and so interesting. And one of the raging debates that exists today, for example, it's generally taken for granted that the 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 the, depart, the chair of the Department of Queer Studies should be a queer person. It would be absurd if they weren't. Or the chair of the Department of African-American Studies should be a person of color. However, in the Jewish Studies Department world, um, it's largely and dominantly embraced among Jewish studies scholars that you don't have to be Jewish to be a Jewish studies professor or the chair of the department. In fact, the Jewish studies professors are even offended by the idea. They say, we're not, we're not, we're not doing religious work here. This is intellectual work. And that's why, in fact, I, I don't know if it's the majority today, but significant number of those who teach in a Jewish studies department are not Jewish at all. And some people don't like that. They say, you know, you can't understand that. And other people, and most Jewish studies academics are rigorously defending that. And um, so too, we live, we live in a time of, of purity where people feel that not everyone can speak about something. And on the one hand, we want humility because as we said, we can't experience something that we can't experience. On the other hand, do we really want, as Aglaia said, people to only talk about this, this, you know, things that they've experienced, you know, directly? Um, that feels incredibly uh, limiting and, and, and maybe even destructive for us to not be in a shared discourse where everyone's voice matters, everyone's scholarship matters. And so, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. And I personally would like to see us go to a more expansive place of, of who's entering discourse and feels, you know, intellectually committed to being a part of conversations um, rather than move to a more tribal place. So yes, um, Aglaia said much more than that, but that's just my first reaction. I guess I've sort of experienced, I guess, the kind of what we've been talking about over this past weekend for Veterans Day. Um, there was a film being shown on the coast, Western coast, West coast, uh, about a, a Japanese submarine that had arrived on coast and they launched an airplane from the submarine and they bombed a, or dropped a couple of bombs uh, near the Oregon coast. And that's what this film was about. And I decided to attend, uh, kind of not knowing what I was getting myself into because it was going to be a small group it was just a small town and they were showing this film about a samurai who had arrived on a submarine, flown this airplane and dropped the bombs. And I was thinking, because I have heard the 
sort of uh, attitudes that you could either run into somebody that was totally opposed to anything Japanese or the enemy uh, and others who have sort of, I don't want to say gotten over it, but it's, 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 it was a wartime. It, it was long, long ago past. So we watched the film and there were a couple comments made about the technical issues like, you know, did that really happen on that date or did they really do that much damage or, uh, and such. And the thing that struck me was, I thought she did a great job in this film. Uh, and I had shown or viewed another film by this uh, filmmaker and um, it had a lot to do with reconciliation. And this one actually had a lot to do with reconciliation. So afterwards in the Q&A, I decided that I would take a risk and stand up and question, or I made a statement on, on the microphone uh, in a Zoom session with this filmmaker. And I told her that the first film that uh, I had viewed, I showed it to a couple of religious groups. And after we viewed that film, there was not a dry eye in the entire audience. In fact, the only comment we could get was, where's there some more Kleenex tissue paper? And I didn't really know what the reaction would be from this group that had viewed it, nor even from the filmmaker. Um, but she was definitely moved by that comment. She said, nobody has ever told me how they felt, and particularly a Japanese American about it. Um, and all I can say from that and from this session today was, even if I had experienced the war in Vietnam, that was so long ago that what I came out of it with as an experience and hearing stories of others experiencing the war, I don't trust my experience as being, you know, only my experience. So I actually have to learn about the other's experience, even though they may have been right by my side and we experience the same situation, we may come out with a totally different knowledge, understanding, and they may even conflict. Um, so I'm not so sure if I'm that confident of the truth by my experience, I will be confident that that is my truth if you will listen to you know where I'm coming from. Uh, but I'm not so sure I could say, yeah, uh, you know, I've experienced the war in Vietnam. Uh, well, wait a minute, I got to qualify that. Uh, this part of the war, in the, on this particular day in Vietnam, in this particular situation. Um, but that still could differ from somebody else's. Yeah, Ed, that's so rich. Um, I'm so, thank you for sharing that, that personal and, and thoughtful experience. And I'm sure that resonates for many people here. Um, and inspired to hear about 
how such a deep experience can also bring you to such a, a real humility around what we know, um, you know, with your truth and beyond. And just on the point of war, I mean, we do we do give um, uh, we do often expect that many of our, our highest level politicians have been soldiers. We expect that people who have not been in war won't understand war. Um, and, um, you know, but then again, we understand that some experiences work against us because we've been uh, so immersed within a certain experience that how can we ever exist outside of it? That's a little bit like the teaching that um, the Israelites who came out of slavery needed to die off before the, the Israelites had sovereignty in Israel because you can't have slaves with sovereignty. You need to get rid of that slave mentality that the experience of slavery is not going to serve well in the next level. So some experiences are actually going to hinder that next level and other experiences are necessary. Um, how could somebody decide whether or not to go to war if they've never experienced the horrors of it itself? Great. So just to conclude today, we looked at Husserl and some of his students, and we looked a little bit towards this move that Ed's been talking about, that many of us have been talking about, this move towards our own truths, our own experiences, and the humility around others, and how we can move now philosophy just from this distant study of things um, into this proximate relationship with reality. And ontology gets oftentimes a bad rap. One of the, one of the ways that some have said why the Holocaust was possible in Germany was precisely its obsession with ontology, the study of being beyond the direct encounter with people can lead people to have an abstract sense of ethics, which is devoid of that human empathy. And that form of philosophy, Levinas will say, is exactly why the Holocaust was possible. You can do atrocious things to people right in front of you because you have some abstract philosophy you're imposing upon them, some ideology. And Husserl is moving us now towards this track and his later student Levinas, or, or you know, moving us down that track, says, no, no, you need to see the face of another human being. You cannot move away from that encounter. That is going to be central in what it means to be a moral person and what moral philosophy needs to be. Dialogue, face-to-face -face encounter, relationship is going to be crucial to what it means to be a part of the moral enterprise. Not sitting in your philosophy study, reading books, and analyzing abstract ideas. That's what can lead to a Holocaust ultimately. Um, because people can come up with atrocious ideologies that justify a whole lot of horrible things. Very smart people who can be deeply immoral. And so um, that's why we believe at VPM, learning has to move into action. We can't just learn. We then have to go be together and act together, ultimately. So friends, next week, um, we're going to move to John Dewey. We're going to move to Dewey, which is a, um, really a, a, whole new, a whole new area of, of interest. And I appreciate your adapting to our time today. I know you all have busy schedules. And um, we are in, in almost all of the cases of the next 15-ish um, are going to be, um, uh, you know, in that Tuesday slot, uh, 16, I guess. Um, but in the, in the two or three cases where we cannot, we are going to find a new time in the week because I, I don't want to miss a week together um, so that we can be, be moving forward. So with that, bless you all. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for sharing um, all of your, your great insights. Thank you so much.